I'm Ted O'Connell, one of the authors of Crush Step 1, the ultimate USMLE Step 1 review, along with my co-authors, Ryan Pedigo and Thomas Blair. I am also the chief content officer for Inside the Boards. This is a Crush Step 1 podcast based on the second edition of our best-selling book. The goal is to provide you high-yield and high-quality audio content of the book to help you study on the go and reclaim some of the time in your day. My name is Tulsi Shaw, and I am a medical student as well as one of the authors of Crush Step 1. This is part one of the pharmacology and toxicology chapter of Crush Step 1, second edition. Pharmacokinetics Overview Pharmacokinetics is a description of a drug's journey through a patient's body. This involves four main processes. One, absorption. Two, distribution. Three, metabolism. And four, excretion. Imagine the sequence logically. The patient takes a drug and absorbs it. Then the drug distributes throughout the body, is metabolized by the body, and finally is excreted. First, absorption. Absorption is simply how the patient's body takes in or absorbs the drug in question. Enteral, meaning absorbed through the intestines, oral, and rectal. Parenteral, meaning absorbed without the intestines, intravenous, intramuscular, subcutaneous, inhaled, topical, or transdermal. The term bioavailability describes how much of what is ingested makes it into the systemic bloodstream. Oral drugs often have a lower bioavailability because 1. Not everything is absorbed, incomplete tablet breakdown, barriers to absorption across the gut mucosa, gastric acid or enzymatic destruction, and 2. After absorption through the intestines into the portal vein, the drug first passes through the liver where some of the drug is metabolized before reaching the systemic bloodstream, termed first-pass metabolism, seen in figure 7.1. IV administration always has 100% bioavailability because it goes directly into the bloodstream. All parenteral routes bypass first-pass metabolism, and rectal administration typically bypasses about half of first-pass metabolism because some drug is absorbed through the portal system into the liver and some into the caval system, meaning through the vena cava, back to the heart. Number two, distribution. Distribution is where the drug goes after it is absorbed and is usually discussed as the volume of distribution, or V sub D. The volume of distribution is defined as V sub D is equal to the amount of drug in body divided by the plasma drug concentration. Conceptually, the volume of distribution is a way to indicate how much of a drug stays in the patient's bloodstream and is unbound to protein. If the volume of distribution is high, it indicates that the drug is somehow not in the free state in the bloodstream. Either it is bound to protein in the bloodstream or has left the bloodstream, such as lipid-soluble drugs going into fat. The average adult has about 5 liters of blood, and therefore a V sub D of about 5 indicates that it distributes only in blood. Higher volumes of distribution indicate that it distributes further, likely into tissues or fat. Third, metabolism. Metabolism is one of the two ways that the body can decrease the concentration of active drug in the bloodstream, the other being excretion, described later. The liver is the primary site for metabolism of drugs. This is the reason that first-pass metabolism exists. 
if people in the Stone Age ate something poisonous, the liver would have the chance to detoxify it before it killed them. Unfortunately, the body also sees the drugs we prescribe as potential toxins and attempts to metabolize them through a process called biotransformation. There are two phases of biotransformation. Phase 1 biotransformation, or oxidation, and Phase 2 biotransformation, or conjugation. Phase 1 biotransformation. Mediated by the microsomal cytochrome P450, or CYP monooxygenase system, with CYP3A4 being the most common subtype for these reactions. In general, these reactions are oxidations, by far the most common, reductions, or hydrolysis. The exact reactions are not important, but the goal is to make the drug more polar, more water-soluble, so that it can be excreted by the kidney. The bioavailability of drugs is reduced by this step, but some drugs retain their activity after this process. In fact, some drugs, called prodrugs, are actually made active rather than inactive by this process, but this is the exception rather than the rule. Older adults have decreased phase 1 biotransformation ability, and this is one of the reasons that older adults often need smaller doses of medications for the same effect. Phase 2 biotransformation. In these reactions, a molecule is strapped on or conjugated to the drug, such as an acetyl group, sulfide, or glucuronide. Again, the reactions are not important, but this reaction almost always makes the drug inactive. Metabolism has many important clinical implications. For instance, the opioid analgesic codeine is metabolized into the more active morphine by CYP2D6. 10% of whites have decreased CYP2D6 activity and will not get adequate pain relief with codeine administration. In addition, CYP2C19 activates the antiplatelet agent clopidogrel into the active form. Therefore, those with poor CYP2C19 activity, more common in Asian populations, will not have therapeutic levels of the drug in their body, and this may have catastrophic consequences. Both drugs mentioned here are made active by the CYP enzymes in the liver. For review, is this a phase 1 or phase 2 reaction? Because the drugs are made active by this process, what are they called? If you did not get these answers immediately, revisit the previous paragraphs. These differences in CYP activity vary based on genetics. Race and ethnicity are imperfect proxies for this, but are sometimes tested on examinations and so are used as examples here. Another commonly tested and clinically relevant aspect of metabolism is that many drugs, herbs, and even foods can either inhibit or induce the CYP family of enzymes. Grapefruit juice inhibits CYP3A4. Recall that this is the most common CYP for metabolizing drugs, and therefore patients may have higher drug levels if they take their medication with it. St. John's wort, an herbal treatment for depression, induces CYP3A4 and can rev up metabolism of drugs so that the level of active drug in the body will decrease. Finally, the drug must be 4 excreted from the body typically by the kidneys in the urine, but also through feces by biliary excretion. For renal excretion, the previous metabolism steps helped make the drug more polar to be water-soluble to stay in the urine, and now the kidneys must excrete the drug. There are a few things to keep in mind when looking at renal excretion. 1. Glomerular filtration. 
The drug must be delivered to the glomerulus if it is to be filtered. Therefore, patients with a decreased glomerular filtration rate, GFR, as in renal disease, or those taking a drug that is bound to proteins so it cannot be delivered to the glomerulus free and unbound, will have decreased renal clearance of the drug. 2. Active tubular secretion. The kidney has channels called organic cation transporters and organic anion transporters for the active secretion of charged ions into the nephron. These can be blocked by medications such as probenicid used in the treatment of gout. 3. Passive tubular reabsorption. Uncharged, lipid-soluble molecules can be more readily absorbed through renal tubular cell membranes. The metabolic steps in phase 1 and phase 2 biotransformation reactions help keep the molecules water-soluble and charged, facilitating excretion. Many drugs are weak acids or weak bases, and the pH of the soon-to-be urine can determine how much of the acid or base stays inside the nephron to be excreted in the urine and how much will be reabsorbed. Therefore, if the drug is a weak acid, then alkalization of the urine will increase excretion by making more of the drug in the charged A- form rather than the uncharged HA form. This is referred to as ion trapping, seen in figure 7.2, because the charged ions are trapped inside the lumen of the nephron. Conversely, if the drug is a weak base, then acidification of the urine to make more of the drug in the charged HB plus form will facilitate excretion. A similar concept is found in the use of lactulose for patients with hepatic encephalopathy. Patients with liver failure have decreased urea cycle activity because the liver is the main site where the urea cycle takes place, and therefore, toxic ammonia-containing compounds build up and can cause changes in mental status. Lactulose taken orally is broken up by the bacteria in the colon to make lactic acid and acetic acid, acidifying the colonic contents and changing the absorbable weak base ammonia NH3 derived from dietary proteins into the charged unabsorbable NH4 plus ammonium ion. This ion trapping mechanism is the same as in the kidney. The charged ion is not absorbed and is instead excreted. Another form of excretion is through the bile to eventually be excreted in the stool. Many drugs that underwent conjugation, recall that this is a phase 2 biotransformation, with glucuronate can be excreted in this fashion. In fact, bilirubin, a byproduct of red blood cell breakdown, is excreted in this way through a phase 2 reaction with UTP glucuronosyl transferase, which is deficient in patients with Gilbert disease and those with Kligler-Najjar disease. Now, when you look at a patient's laboratory values for unconjugated and conjugated bilirubin, referred to as indirect and direct respectively in the laboratory values, you will understand what is occurring. However, because the intestines have so much surface area and absorptive capacity, as well as bacteria that can deconjugate the molecule, the drug has a second chance to be absorbed into the bloodstream yet again, termed enterohepatic recycling or enterohepatic circulation. If this occurs, the entire process of being absorbed and excreted in bile repeats. Pharmacokinetics, calculations, and kinetics. A basic understanding of the calculations in pharmacokinetics is important for both the USMLE Step 1 and also for clinical practice. First, it is important to talk about elimination of drugs in terms of zero-order kinetics versus first-order kinetics. Zero-order kinetics. 
A constant amount of drug is eliminated per unit of time, so the rate of elimination is constant regardless of concentration of drug. Examples include phenytoin, ethanol, and aspirin, PEA. Use the following mnemonic. A P or PEA is round, just like the zero of zero-order kinetics. The zero-order kinetics of ethanol is where the idea that the body can only metabolize one alcoholic drink, such as a beer, per hour comes from. Regardless of how many beers are consumed, the body can only metabolize one beer per hour. Therefore, it exhibits zero-order kinetics because a constant amount of beer is removed from the body. Drinking more alcohol won't make the body remove alcohol from your body any faster. Drink one beer, and your body will metabolize one beer per hour. Drink 10 beers, don't test this, just take our word for it, and your body will metabolize one beer per hour. The reason is that the elimination pathway becomes saturated, and there are only enough enzymes to clear one beer per hour. First order kinetics. A constant fraction of drug is eliminated per unit time, so the rate of elimination is proportional to the drug concentration. This is a much more common method in which drugs are metabolized. Except for the drugs in the PEA mnemonic mentioned earlier, almost all drugs are eliminated by first-order kinetics. For example, if the body can eliminate half of a given drug per hour and a patient has a blood concentration of 100 mg per milliliters of that drug, the concentration will have each hour from 100 to 50 to 25 to 12.5 and so on. Note that a progressively smaller absolute amount of drug is being removed each hour, 50 in the first hour, 25 in the second hour, and so on, whereas in zero-order kinetics, a constant amount is removed each hour. Another important concept to learn is the half-life of a drug, which is the time it takes for half the drug to be metabolized. Recall in the zero-order kinetics model that a constant amount of drug is eliminated per unit time so the half-life of zero-order kinetics will change with the concentration of the drug. For instance, if you drink 10 beers, it would take 5 hours at the rate of 1 beer per hour to metabolize half the beer, half-life of 5 hours. However, if you instead drink 2 beers, it would only take an hour to metabolize half the beer because after 1 hour, you would have 1 beer left in your body, half-life of 1 hour. On the other hand, because in first-order kinetics, a constant proportion is metabolized, the half-life is constant for a specific drug. For a first-order kinetics drug, the half-life can be given by the equation. Half-life equals 0.7 times the volume of distribution divided by the clearance, where V sub D is the volume of distribution. This equation basically says that a higher volume of distribution will increase the half-life because it is redistributing into fat or other body compartments and will not be available to be metabolized readily, and a faster clearance will cause a decreased half-life, which is intuitive because if the body gets rid of the drug faster, it will decrease the concentration of the drug faster. After a patient has taken a drug for a period of time, typically four to five times the half-life of the drug, it reaches a steady state, seen in Table 7.1 and Figure 7.3, where the amount of drug taken equals the amount of drug leaving the body.
Table 7.1 and Figure 7.3 essentially show that the steady state of a drug is reached after four to five half-lives of that drug. Please look at the images for more information. The concept of steady state also applies to clinical practice. For instance, in hypothyroidism, levothyroxine is given as replacement T4 thyroid hormone and has a half-life of about one week. Therefore, when a patient is started on this daily medication, it will take about five half-lives to come to a new steady state. This is a rationale for checking thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, six weeks after starting a patient on levothyroxine for hypothyroidism. Any sooner and the drug would not have reached steady state and the TSH would not be an accurate reflection of whether or not the dose was therapeutic. Refer to Chapter 9 for details on thyroid hormone physiology. The last calculations that you are expected to know are the loading dose and maintenance dose for the medication. These calculations build on the information already presented in this chapter. The loading dose is given as loading dose is equal to C sub P times V sub D all divided by F, where C sub P is the target plasma concentration, V sub D is the volume of distribution, and F is the bioavailability of the drug. Remember this is always 1.0 or 100% for intravenous drugs. The loading dose is a larger one-time dose to get the patient up to the desired plasma concentration without having to wait for five half-lives because waiting isn't always feasible. For a large volume of distribution, a much larger loading dose may need to be given because such a small amount of the drug will stay inside the plasma. Instead, those drugs may be redistributing into fat or other tissues outside of the bloodstream. The maintenance dose is given as maintenance dose equals C sub P times clearance all over F, where C sub P is the target plasma concentration and F is the bioavailability of the drug. It represents the dose at which the net concentration of that drug in the bloodstream is unchanging. Therefore, the elimination of the drug equals the rate of administration of the drug. Think of this as a leaking bucket. The water leaking out is the metabolism of the drug, and the water being poured into the bucket is the administration of the drug. The goal here is to equalize these two things so that the level of the water in the bucket, or the amount of drug in the patient, remains unchanged. Pharmacodynamics Overview Pharmacodynamics is a study of how a given drug causes its effect. Pharmacodynamics includes, for example, the understanding of receptor activity, signal transduction pathways, and physiologic effects of a given drug. This section will highlight the fundamental concepts and some prototypical drugs that are instrumental to understanding this concept. Fundamentally, drugs will interact with some form of receptor. When a drug interacts with a receptor, it can do so in many ways. Some drugs activate the receptor. These are called agonists. Some drugs block the receptor. These are called antagonists. Some drugs activate the receptors but are unable to do so fully. These are called partial agonists because they can only elicit a submaximal or partial response. To have an effect, the drug must bind to the receptor in question. It can either do this reversibly, non-covalent bonding such as hydrogen bonding, or irreversibly, covalent bonding such as with aspirin. Drugs will like to attach to different receptors more or less depending on their particular shape and size, referred to as the affinity of the drug for its receptor. We express this chemically by looking at the following equilibrium. 
concentration of the drug plus the concentration of the receptor is in equilibrium with the concentration of the drug minus receptor. If the drug has a high affinity for the receptor, most of this equilibrium will lie to the right as a drug receptor complex. Only a small amount of the drug will be required to achieve the intended effect because it sticks to the receptor so well. This is called high potency. Potency is measured as the half maximal effective concentration, or EC50, which is a concentration of the drug needed to elicit 50% of the maximal effect. If you need a lot of the drug to achieve that, the drug is a low potency drug. For instance, benzathine penicillin, a long-acting antibiotic used in the treatment of syphilis, has a dose of 2.4 million units. Because a high dose of the drug is required to have the intended effect, it is a low-potency drug. As an aside, because pharmacologists love to confuse medical students, sometimes the drug-receptor interaction will be described in terms of a K sub D, or dissociation constant. This is tricky because a high dissociation constant, or a high K sub D, means that the drug-receptor complex wants to dissociate and come apart and therefore it would have a low affinity. Conversely, a low K sub D means the drug does not want to dissociate, and it would have a high affinity. Do not get tricked by this. The efficacy of a drug is the maximum response achievable from a drug, regardless of the amount of drug needed. Note that a drug can have great efficacy, but not be potent if a drug has a high maximal response but requires a lot of the drug to do so. If an analgesic can take away 100% of a patient's pain but requires 1 million milligrams to do so, this would have a high efficacy but low potency. Conversely, a drug can have high potency, small amount of drug required to get 50% of the maximal response, but have low efficacy if the drug cannot ever achieve a maximal response regardless of dose given, i.e. a very potent partial agonist. Do not be confused by this concept. Remember, potency and efficacy are independent of each other. Refer to graphs A to C later in figure 7.4 to illustrate this concept. Antagonists block receptor sites and try to prevent activation of that receptor. They can be either competitive, meaning they compete for the same active site as a normal agonist for that receptor, or non-competitive, meaning they bind to a different site separate from that of the normal agonist for that receptor seen in figure 7.5. This difference is important because if there are high levels of an agonist present, the competitive antagonist can be outcompeted, being drowned out by all the agonists competing for the same site. On the other hand, because non-competitive antagonists and agonists do not compete for the same site, the non-competitive antagonists cannot be outcompeted by high concentrations of agonists. Take some time to familiarize yourself with figure 7.4. A. The addition of a competitive antagonist does not decrease the efficacy or ability to achieve a maximal effect of the agonist because adding more of the agonist overwhelms the competitive antagonist. However, because more drug is required to achieve 50% of the maximal effect, the agonist is less potent. B. The addition of an irreversible antagonist causes decreased efficacy because regardless of how much of the agonist is added, it cannot outcompete the antagonist. It is irreversible and will not unbind. A non-competitive antagonist would have the same effect because it does not bind to the same site as the agonist. 
so the high concentration of agonist cannot displace it. C, a partial agonist, as mentioned earlier, is something that cannot have a maximal effect, less than 100% efficacy. Of note, in this particular case, the partial agonist is more potent than the full agonist because the EC50 is at a lower dose than the full agonist. Again, this demonstrates the idea that efficacy and potency are independent of each other. Lastly, familiarize yourself with the idea of the therapeutic index, or TI, a measurement of the margin of safety of a drug. It is calculated as TI is equal to the median toxic dose divided by the median effective dose. If the drug has a TI of 100, then the median toxic dose is 100 times greater than the median effective dose, a very safe medication. However, if the TI was 1.001, for example, the median toxic dose would be barely greater than the median effective dose, and toxic effects would be much more likely, i.e. chemotherapeutics. That is the end of part one of the pharmacology and toxicology chapter. With that, we wrap up today's episode of the Crush Step One podcast. A big thank you to Elsevier Incorporated, the publishing company behind Crush Step One, as well as all of my other books, for allowing us to put out this book in podcast format. Thank you for joining us, and please check out our other chapters.